The Walk Awards for Effectiveness are back for 2024 and they're bigger than ever. We are looking for campaigns that celebrate strategic brilliance and effective impact across 12 categories and five new regional shows. The great news is you just need to enter once for the chance to win in your region and be in line for the Global Grand Prix. We'll be announcing those during Can Lions Week, where you can prove that your campaign is one of the most effective in the world. We're open for entries now. Early bird deadline, 12th of December. Final deadline, 6th of February. For more info on the fees and regions covered, head to walk.com to download your entry pack now. Strategic brilliance, effective impact. It's the award show you've been waiting for. Hello and welcome to the Walk podcast. My name's Amy Rogers. I'm head of content for Walk Creative, our content pillar that looks at all things creative effectiveness. And this episode is part of a special three-part series that looks at just that, creative effectiveness. We'll be looking at work that has worked and asking what you can learn from it. To do this, we're looking at campaigns from the 2023 Walk Awards for Effectiveness, looking at the work that won earlier this year. And remember that the 2024 awards are now open for entries. Joining me in this series is John Bazell, awards lead at Walk. And in this third episode, we're going to be talking about examples of brave brands, those that have taken a risk, steps outside of their category norms and comfort zones, and thought outside of the box when it comes to their creative ideas. Now, like I said, we're taking those examples from this year's Walk Awards, and we announced these winners in Cannes in June. Now, for those that listened to the first couple of episodes in this series, you'll have already heard us talk about the upcoming changes to the Walk Awards, but just bear with us for a second while John takes a little bit of time to run through um, the changes for new listeners. So, John, hello again. Final episode in our series. How do you feel? Hello, Amy. Yes, it's been a real journey. Uh, Thanks for having me. Uh, But for any of our listeners who haven't been on that journey with us, I will just quickly say that the Walk Awards 2024 are now open for entries. And this time we've expanded to five new regional leagues. These are APAC, Europe, LATAM, MEA and North America. See, to me, three podcasts, but now I know them all definitely. Uh, We'll be announcing bronze, silver and gold winners in all 12 of our categories across all of those regions in May. And then the gold winners will automatically go through to compete in a global championship for our Grand Prix. So basically, you enter once and you have the chance to win in your region and then be crowned the most effective campaign in your category in the world. Uh, And that will be in Cannes next year. I can taste the rosé now. (laughs) in the whole world what a title Mm -hmm. Uh, I can't wait to see the entries this year Um, but yeah I'm not ready to talk about Rosé yet (laughs) (laughs) on to today's topic Um, today we're talking about brave brands Um, now when we look at award-winning campaigns one thing you can pull out fairly consistently among the winners are those that have taken a risk with their campaigns and actually when you speak to various successful companies not just in marketing but in other industries too they often speak of an internal culture where failure is allowed. It's not punished. And that actually leads to greater success as people are able and facilitated to kind of take risks. Um, you know, with great risk comes great reward, as they say. Um, and I think, though, we've we've been talking about brave brands for a long time and we've talked about them on this podcast before. And we do know the success it can generate. 
actually in today's society, it's becoming harder and harder to um, take those risks and to be brave. Um, you know, fear of offending and of online backlash is a, is a very real situation for a lot of brands. And that makes taking risks a lot harder for marketing teams um, and for their agencies um, to kind of sell in. Yeah, absolutely. And I'd like to draw attention to two walk pieces of content here. So our colleague, Kathy Taylor, uh, in the US wrote a piece about the pressure on brands around Pride Month recently, where she says that a lot of marketers are genuinely scared to talk about or, or write about the backlash they've experienced. Um, and then there's also a very let's say disheartening stat in this year's Future of Strategy report, which indicates that 64% of respondents agreed that their organisations are becoming less brave or or more conservative in their strategic choices. Yeah, definitely not a great stat. Um, on the Future of Strategy, if you're interested in listening to a podcast on how to bring back bravery to strategy based on that report that's just been published. Um, that episode of Walk Talks was, was, was just published. So add that one to your playlist to listen to once, um, once you finish this one. Um, but yeah, the threat of backlash is, is giving rise to some, I'd say, fairly dull advertising. Um, having said that, I have been seeing a bit of a marketing industry kind of campaign against dull um, recently. And I know Peter Field and um, Eat Big Fish, you're an agency, are doing some work at the moment trying to quantify the actual cost to brands of being dull, which I think is an interesting piece of work. Um, so there are some that are swimming against the tide, but being brave requires more bravery, I suppose, than than perhaps it used to, um, which makes these three case studies that we're going to talk about today even more interesting to have a look at. Yeah, absolutely. And and let's be really clear, dull work is not winning any awards. Um, so I think we can safely say that all of our winners piqued the judges' interest in some way. but bravery, taking chances, really backing an idea is like an extra level to that. And the campaigns we're going to look at today are are really great examples of it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Just to re-emphasize that none of these are dull in the slightest. (laughs) Um, And we're going to kick off today by talking about a campaign called The Homecoming from Home Center, which is a retail brand in the Middle East. It sells things like furniture and furnishings. Um, Now, the reason I'm labeling Home Center as a brave brand is because it chose a subject to focus this campaign on, which was a significant cultural taboo in the region, and that was adoption. Um, This is something that's perceived to be against religion um, and also illegal by some people, which is is incorrect, but um, it's actively and and quite violently discouraged by society. Um, But Home Center launched a short film with a supporting campaign that promoted and supported the adoption process. And it had a tangible impact um, on culture through this, um, while also growing the Home Centre brand. Yeah, this is the winner of our Grand Prix in the cultural impact category. Um, And here the judges are looking to reward strategies and instances of brands entering or impacting on culture, but they also have to demonstrate a, a business outcome. And this is a really emotive campaign. As you say, they created a short film, but it's unlike the usual ads and commercials that are seen in the Middle East. This one is based on the untold insight that you're not just pregnant or expecting with your own child, but you can also be expecting with your to-be-adopted child as it takes the same amount of time and preparation. And the film features a man and a woman, though you only sort of through most of it, you sort of see their heads or you see them from the back. Um, and they're 
reading a psychology book around a new baby and having arguments, making up, there's cravings, crises, they're building their cribs. So, it, and it's all soundtracked by this sort of soft take on Elvis's can't help falling in love. It's really nicely done. There's no words. And then the twist at the end, it's revealed that the woman isn't pregnant, but that they're adopting a child. So, I mean, this twist is a fairly simple idea, but it, it is really well executed and everyone in the jury room was moved by this. It's Home Centre really taking the idea of what home means and being purposeful with that idea. Yeah, I, I agree. It is a, a really moving film. And if you haven't seen it, sorry for the spoiler, but but do have a watch. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, that purposeful piece, it's something that's been at the heart of Home Centre's campaigns for some time. Um, we've got a clip to play in a moment from a conversation I had with Tahab Race, who is um, Chief Strategy Officer at Publicist Group. Um, and he spoke about the development of this strategy with purpose in mind. Home Centre has always strive to be a purposeful brand. The intent has been, we've got a great brand, we've got a great product offering. Now we need to make our brand do good in the world with what we offer. And the entire purpose stands around the fact that we want to enable every home to create and share its own story, which was something that gave birth to a dad's job in 2020. It also won a war Grand Prix. And the focus there was on single moms and telling the story of single moms in homes who are prevalent across the Middle East, but no one talks about them, right? So as as evolution to single moms, we as we think about home center and we look at the homes where stories are not enabled, we look at those homes that are excluded from marketing, communications, and from the furniture category as well. And as we looked at those homes, we looked at the stories of those homes where children are adopted. And no one really talks about those homes. And no one really talks about adoption in the Middle East. And this was the first piece of work that was done. So the entire objective was how can we bring home center's purpose to life, you know, in an effective manner? And what topic do we pick this year to follow up from the effective work we did for single moms a couple of years back? So that was the brief that we had from the brand. They didn't know what topic to focus on. So we had to do a bit of digging and we found the topic around adoption, which we felt was very potent, extremely provocative because it was a taboo. And hence, we felt we had an active role to play as a brand. So really interesting to hear to have talking there about how Home Centre really leaned into a provocative subject where a lot would would shy away from it. You know, they they actively looked for something that was going to cause a stir and get people talking and potentially provoke a backlash. And and they fully expected to get a backlash. Um, That's something else that we talked about during this interview um, was around how they prepared for the negative kind of comments and sentiment that they got um, straight away after the campaign aired. And, and I think that's a key point with brave brands and taking risks is, is that taking a risk doesn't mean doing something flippant or rash. These kind of campaigns take an enormous amount of planning and preparation. Yeah, exactly. We can't stress that enough. Being brave in this context isn't like gung-ho or they threw themselves in to, to back this you have to be willing to do a massive amount of work. And we see campaigns coming through the Walk Awards that have these really controversial or risky ideas at the heart of them. But sometimes they've taken years to actually come to be because of the amount of the internal sign-off that has to happen and the planning for the backlash that needs to be done. 
Yeah, exactly that. Um, I'll play another clip here from Tahab where he talks about the the time it took um, to come, you know, for this campaign to come to fruition mm. and, and the partnerships that they put in place to defend the campaign against that inevitable backlash that they did get because of this subject matter being such a taboo. Firstly, it took us a long time to be convinced about it ourselves because we knew it was risky. So hence, it took two years to finally start to have confidence in it once we started to see the trend move. And then when we presented it the very first time, everyone loved it. You know, people were moved by it. And I know some people got tears in their eyes going through that storyboard. But then there's always that, you know, human fear of should we do this? What if there's a backlash? You know, because everyone's got jobs you know, and we've got to empathize with our clients as well. You know, they're working. They don't want issues to happen because of which they lose their jobs or they lose their, you know, income. We have to be conscious of that as we sit and sell bold ideas so we had to spend time with them and take them through the entire strategy behind it saying okay we are launching with a film we have gotten partnerships and i think that's the very important thing we did we partnered with muslim scholars Mm -hmm. we partnered with psychologists we partnered with legal counselors to prove on all three fronts it was okay to tackle it was okay religiously it was okay legally and it was okay from even a human perspective because there's a psychologist there who tells you how to adopt and what to go through, what the process is like and how you can overcome the difficulties. So we had, you know, uh, how do I say it, a testimonials from these three people that were shared with the client as well to give them more confidence. Yeah, I'd love to just play the whole interview because honestly, it was yeah. really interesting to hear all of the different layers of strategy that were put in place to to tackle any negativity. And I, I think there were four layers. They had this solid PR strategy in place with TV channels engaged and, and ready to cover the story. They had influencers ready to tell their stories. Um, they had people in the industry talking about it. And then they had the fourth layer that to have talked about in the the legal and the religious partnerships that they developed. And he, he referred to it as an ecosystem of influence that they put in place. Oh, love that. And what a great tip for potentially divisive work plan an ecosystem of influence ready to tackle that negativity. Um, and in this case, it really worked, right? So the case study gives this stat that 50%, uh, there was 50% negative sentiment at the start of the campaign, and that transformed to 82% positive sentiment afterwards. Um, and remember, back when I said the criteria for this award also talk about demonstrating business growth um, as from the cultural impact that you've made. So home centers say they saw 21% value growth and 14% revenue growth in the eight months that followed this campaign. And, and this while their major competitor, IKEA, apparently stayed stagnant. Yeah, yeah, great results. And it's important to say that although there was that initial backlash, the campaign really turned things around and it and mm. it really shifted the dial in terms of that trend towards adoption becoming less taboo in the region. There's one final thing I'd like to mention from this campaign, and, and that's the importance of having great relationships between clients and agencies to enable this kind of risky but creative work to be effective. Um, A lot of the interviews I did with Walk Awards winners this year spoke about having collaborative, supportive partnerships. And those kind of relationships mean that when risky ideas are proposed or there is backlash off the back of campaigns that have already taken place, there is the trust there to allow or or enable brands to be brave. Um, Here's to have talking again about how the brand fought hard to do the campaign based on um, their belief in the agency. And I have to give credit to our to our brand partner, who's the head of marketing at Home Center. He is the one who pushed for this. 
he fought for this internally. He was like, I want to do this topic. It's extremely powerful. I want to back this. I believe in the agency and I know we'll have an amazing success. So without his support, I don't believe we still would have done this piece of work. So credit goes to him, honestly. Like we can come up with crazy ideas all the time, but it's the clients who make it happen. Okay, so on to our next campaign for today. And this is something completely different. This campaign is called Phone It In. It's from mobile telecoms provider Skinny, who are in New Zealand. And this was the silver winner in our channel pioneer category, uh, which is all about rewarding pioneering media practices. And that can be leveraging emerging platforms, but also we're looking at innovative uses of existing media. And that's really where this Skinny campaign comes in. And it's using the radio channel. So I'm going to start just giving some background. Skinny is a brand with a history of using its customers in its ads. It won the Grand Prix for Sustained Growth in our 2022 awards for its famous Names campaign, which starred Skinny customers with the same names as celebrities. I'm sure loads of people will remember that. Um, For this campaign, the Phone It In campaign, Skinny asked the public to record its radio ads on the brand's behalf. So people had to phone a number and then they'd read out a script to a voicemail. And these scripts were posted on buses, billboards, on beer mats, um, coffee cups, all over the place. So here's a clip from the case study video to give you a, a flavour of these calls. You want to be in an ad? It is as simple as calling a number. You phone this number and you then read the script that's on the poster to the voicemail. To keep prices low, Skinny has placed this radio script near the theatre. On a central city billboard, on the front page of a newspaper, and the hopes that someone like me will call the number provided. Recorded on their mobile for free. You may think I'm a fool for giving away my voice like this, but who cares? I'm on the radio. Get the Skinny. So there you go. So, uh, Amy, so why is Skinny a brave brand? Um, Because they pass control of this ad over to their customers. You know, I, I think it's a brilliantly creative idea. Um, and side note, it, it won the Radio and Audio Grand Prix at Cannes this year, uh, among a bunch of other creative wins. But I, I think the bravery is in Skinny's long-term commitment to using their customers in their ads and the light-hearted kind of no-frills tone to their advertising that facilitates that that bravery. Um, specific to this campaign, the, the brand developed this radio ad script and, and they tailored it to 34 different locations and they printed it you know, in a range of different out-of-home locations, like you were saying, buses, billboards, etc. And, and these print ads told people to to call that number and, and, and read the script to a voicemail. I mean, on the face of it, it's a pretty bizarre idea, right? Yeah, um, yeah. But And they obviously have a lot of brand awareness in the region. I don't think this would have worked for an unknown brand. You'd be like, why is someone asking me to call a number mm. and read a script? But still, they're trusting in the public to actually go through with it in enough volume to get some viable radio ads, ads out of it. And so I, I think that's brave. And, and I love this campaign. I, I don't know if that's obvious, but I think it's a brilliant campaign. <laughs> yeah, me too. And the person I really want to speak to is whoever had to listen to all of those recordings, because <laughs> yeah. there must have been some very interesting interpretations. Yeah, but particularly <laughs> when the scripts were printed on on beer mats. Um, yeah. But yes, um, to, to that point, actually, that the media placement 
investment one for this was was really interesting. It's a it's a budget brand, so they weren't going to spend millions on on media. Um, so they did things like they bought three a.m. TV slots to reach insomniacs, and they printed the ad on pie packs to reach workers on their lunch break, and and each one was contextually relevant to its placement. So they spoke to the moment or the mindset that that person was in. Mm. So, so this is kind of two campaigns in one. You've got the initial out of home campaign, which is calling on people to record the script. And then there's the radio campaign that came from those calls. And the second part relied on the success of the first. Yeah, exactly. And they didn't really know how many calls to expect, given the only incentive to call was the chance of hearing your voice on the radio. Um, in the case study, Skinny's agency, Spark New Zealand, wrote that they consulted with their radio partners and they estimated that if they were lucky, they'd get 1,000 calls um, with the recording on it. Um, and they ended up getting 2,500, um, 40% of which were actually from non-customers. So they got people who weren't even on the Skinny network to promote the brand. Wow. So that just really shows how engaging these ads were. And I have to say, the judges love this work. So I've got a clip um, of one of the judges, Dennis Chan from Untangled, uh, who worked on this category. And here he is talking about the campaign. Budget brands are always trying to prove they're so savvy, they can be cheap. But Skinny found a way to do it that leverages some clever targeting, scalable customer participation, and fame generation in what is typically considered traditional media like billboards and coasters. Not only have they invited people to play with their brand beyond the typical social channels, they've done so with astounding effectiveness. Yeah, astounding effectiveness. That, that's what we like to mm -hmm. hear. Um, why don't we hear some stats uh, of that effectiveness? Yeah, ready? So $21 for every $1 spent in terms of new customer acquisition, 6% shift in brand consideration over the two months that the campaign ran, and a 35% increase in customer acquisition. Yeah, really, really good results. And and mm. what I liked about this campaign, I mean, I like all of it, but particularly that it doesn't try to do anything fancy with new technology or new media channels. You know, you said at the start that sometimes this category looks at innovations in media, mm -hmm. but this one uses two of the most traditional media channels there are, out of home and radio. Um, but it applies creativity to them to engage people in a new way and, and adds a sprinkle of bravery uh, and you get this award winning piece of work. Okay, on to our final campaign and final brave brand of today, um, and that is eBay and its Wear em Out store campaign. Now, this bravery is in a similar vein to the previous campaign in that uh, it relied on the participation of customers and in this campaign relied on them behaving in a certain way. So let me give some context. Um, like I said, this is from eBay, the online marketplace. Um, it's one of the oldest and largest marketplaces for new and pre-worn sneakers or trainers, if you're a UK listener. Um, and that's one of the brand's biggest growth markets. But it was seeing competition from other reseller competitors that only sell dead stock. And, and what dead stock means is never worn shoes. Um, so there's this whole market for shoes that are, you know, fresh in the box. They've never been put on a person's feet. And they become this asset with crazy pricing rather than just a shoe to be worn. Um, so in this campaign, eBay wanted to kind of get into this cultural conversation around sneakerheads. Um, sneakerheads are this target group obsessed with sneakers and their history. And it wanted to disrupt the cycle of leaving shoes unworn. 
and get, get people talking about eBay as a destination to buy new and used shoes. And it did that with a pop-up shop. Um, so it had a three-day experience in LA, which gave customers a choice. They could pay the full market price um, for a pair of trainers in store. Um, and they could, um, if they paid the full price, they would keep the shoes in their dead stock condition and take them out of the store in the box. Or they could wear them on the spot and um, wear them as they walked out of the store. And for that, they'd get a, a substantial discount. I think it was up to 70% off the full market price. Hmm. Now, I spoke to Jeremy Bush, who is head of strategy at Edelman, New York, when we were in Cannes earlier this year, and he gave his background to the campaign. Yeah, so as eBay, we found ourselves in a really sort of interesting scenario where we had two insurgent competitors with StockX and uh, Goat. We were at a moment where StockX was you know, making a lot of moves and I think they were at like 20% market share at the time. Um, but there also was a little bit of a soft spot. We had a lot of uh, the sneakerhead community was pointing fingers at the resale marketplaces, um, frustrated with the commodification of sneaker culture and shoes. It was harder to get access to the shoes that they wanted. Um, so for us as eBay, it was really about um, getting us back into the cultural conversation. Um, I was just listening to Heisnabiety's Heis founder talking about how uh, culture is language for this consumer. And so it was really important that we get ourselves back into the culture and do it in a way that was going to separate ourselves from those competitors. Great to hear Jeremy there. And this campaign won the Grand Prix in our customer experience category, which is all about rewarding new ways of engaging with consumers and uh, innovative experiences created to connect and immerse them. And this can be physical or digital experience, but what the judges are looking for is work that really pushes the boundaries of, of interaction and engagement and, and loyalty. So JJ Heelan from McDonald's was the chair of this jury, and we spoke about this campaign in some detail on the podcast I recorded with her whilst we were in Cannes. That's called Inside the Jury Room, and listeners can find that back on the feed in July, which I highly recommend if they want to, an insight into how hoarse I was sounding midway through Cannes <laughs> Lions Week. Um, but what she said, uh, and, and what the customer experience jury really loved about this, was that in this hype-driven sneaker drop culture eBay were solving a problem through empathy, access, and action. And those are JJ's words, but I think they really sum it up well. This campaign was customer-centric, tapping into a strong insight to democratize the sneaker category. And the execution of the experience was just really pure and simple. And what they especially loved was that it has this hint of scalability. So this happened in one place, but they loved that eBay could essentially take this idea anywhere. Yeah, definitely. And there's a clip from um, from Jeremy talking about that, which I'll play in a bit. But um, just on the on the kind of subculture aspect, this campaign really targets a, a specific sub subculture, this sneakerhead community. And we're starting to see that a lot more with campaigns. So where mass media might not have that mass reach any longer, we see activations like this where a brand talks to customers in places that have relevance in their lives. Um, but obviously that brings about its own risks. You know, if a brand tries to kind of wedge itself into culture where it has no relevance or, or doesn't connect to people in an authentic way, it can have the opposite of the intended effect. Um, so it, it takes the right level of preparation, but also a bit of bravery to even try to enter into culture in places that people are really passionate about. Yeah, because you've got in this case a really passionate group of 
consumers who love their sneakers and they love them box fresh. And what this campaign is doing is going against that trend of of the subculture by promoting actually wearing the shoes. Yeah, exactly. But but the insight here was that the growth in dead stock sales was actually pricing a lot of that really passionate group out of the market. You know, mm. some of those trainers can sell for, for thousands and thousands of dollars. So eBay appealed to the heart of what makes a sneakerhead, someone who loves to actually wear the shoes. But, you know, still risky, right? They mm-hmm. didn't know that people would just buy the new shoes, um, wouldn't just buy the new shoes at the market price. Um, you know, they were relying on people buying them at that discounted rate and walking out of the store in the shoes. Um, here's Jeremy again on that risk. I mean, personally, I think that risk is what made the idea so beautiful. Yeah. But at the end of the day, 99% of, of the people who in the shoppers that came through wore, it, wore them out. Yeah. And I think the two sort of critical pieces of that one was, we had to give them the choice. It wasn't up to the brand to decide. So actually having the choice to wear them out or not was really living that tension as, as a brand and really being becoming a part of the culture in a way that was authentic. Um, beyond that, I think the um, our, all of our research pointed towards that people were going to wear them out, that there was this latent hunger to wear their sneakers again. So we were pretty confident in it. But yes, there was that 1% that thought, maybe not. We'll see. I think the biggest learning was um, always stay true to the subculture. I think we really are moving more from a mass culture to, to niches. And so the more, you know, I think this work was so successful and so effective because we really focused in on understanding that subculture and understanding attention that we could solve for them. Um, and I think we were ultimately that drove the effectiveness of the work. And as a brand, we were re- rewarded for that. Listening to Jeremy there, I think there's a similar point to make as we made with the homecoming campaign in that, yes, there is some risk and bravery, but it's also about getting the strategy right. You've got to do your research, do the preparation, and then you can ensure success for the campaign. Yeah, you're right. I know influencers were key to this campaign and a lot of the work went into making sure that those partnerships were the right ones. Um, You know, this is a social first subculture, but they needed to find influencers that were able to carry the message and believed in the idea of wearing their sneakers. Um, Ones that didn't want them to just be assets and wanting to enjoy wearing them again. and I should probably say at this point, yes, they did wear them out um, of the store. You know, 99% did, in fact. Um, and, and you know you've been successful when people actively ask you to repeat a campaign in their area. So this is what you were talking about earlier about the scalability. Yeah. I asked Jeremy if there were plans to extend the campaign further into other markets. And, and here's what he said. Yeah, you know, it's funny when we launched uh, social, social media really lit up with a lot of sneakerheads being like, when are you coming to my town? Come to my town next. Like, let's go. We're ready for it. Um, and so, you know, we, we felt that energy, too. We always try to build ideas that are that are scalable and replicable. Um, we've done that before in our work with the eBay on Authentication Nation. Um, we did that here with Wear em Out. And we actually did take this one on the road in a slightly different form with um, Skate em Out. So we partnered in Portland with Nike. Um, and we did a skate em out campaign for the 20th anniversary of the Nike SB Dunks. Um, and similar premise, if the, if the skaters would skate em out, they would get a discount. So we did take it, we did end up taking it on the road. Yeah. Great. So shall we finish up with the all important results? Yes. Let's finish with some stats. 
Okay, so commercials first. Uh, eBay sneaker sales for the quarter rose 25% on the previous year. The campaign gained 1.5 billion impressions and 150 million social interactions, and positive social sentiment increased by 172%. And on those lovely numbers, that is all we have time for today. This was our final episode of this series, but if you didn't listen to the other two, you can access them and hundreds of others through your favourite podcast platform or on walk.com now. A final reminder that the Walk Awards are now open for entries, so do head over to Walk to download your entry pack. And if you enjoyed listening, please subscribe if you don't already. And until next time, thanks for listening. There was, there was literally a peacock wandering past the window I'm sat next to for half of that podcast. I'm like, what the hell, <laughs> what the hell is happening? A peacock? That's not my peacock. In your I Disney Princess castle. <laughs> <laughs> Just animals.